Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for the Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings in our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There you'll also find important announcements along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. Uh, There's a baby in Noah's arms. Congratulations, Noah and Naomi. It's great. Way to go. Um, Friends, it's so good to be here together. Thanks so much. If you're new, my name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's really good to be together. Uh, I was reflecting a little bit. It was like a year ago. We were trying to figure out how to come out of COVID. <laughs> here we are. We're still figuring out a little bit, but this is our, our first Sunday here, obviously. And it's really great to have you here. So thanks so much uh, for being here. Just a reminder, we'll be here three times a month moving forward. And then once a month, we're going to be together in community formation groups throughout the city. And the reason we do that is, is because we really believe that the way that people are changed and transformed is primarily through uh, face-to-face, like sharing about our life with Jesus. And so conversation and prayer and an opportunity to dig a little deeper into our life with God. And so that'll be once a month and We'll be talking a little bit more about those community formation groups uh, next week, and obviously there'll be some information on our website. So um, if you are new with us, uh, you notice that um, we're like diving right into teaching, so we'll have worship and then Eucharist and prayer ministry. And so I'll teach for a little bit. We'll transition into some worship, which will transition into our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, and then we'll make space to to pray for each other. So that's sort of what's on the agenda for today. So first, uh, would you open up your hands with me? Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and that you would stir our hearts through your scripture. Speak to us, Lord. Soften us. Make us like you. In Christ's name, amen. So at the end of Luke's account in the book of Acts of the first sort of generation of Christians that are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who spent the better part of the past 20 years sort of uh, living his life outward, um, traveling all over the Mediterranean world, um, he has found himself in Rome. In fact, he, he, he's in Rome because he got arrested. And the reason he got arrested was because he was preaching the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And there were people all throughout the world at that time that just didn't want Paul to do that. And so they arrested him, and they drug him to Rome, and he finds himself under house arrest, uh, awaiting a trial that will eventually kind of determine the outcome of his life. And we read about this account all through the book of Acts, and we're at the, the end of the book of Acts, and... Um, Again, Paul is under house arrest. He's waiting the necessary meetings uh, to have with the people of Rome that will determine his fate. And everyone around him is curious about what he is going to say at this point in his life. Like, what would you say when you're under arrest, awaiting trial? What's Paul going to talk about to people? What do you think? And this is what we read in verse 23. 
It says that when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. From both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. He wanted to talk about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. You see, the kingdom of God is the thing that Jesus actually talked about the most. If you read throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven comes out of Jesus' mouth 55 times. In a typical Bible, that's like one and a half times a page. He's talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in case we miss it, Luke tells us again at the very end, the last few lines, in fact, of the book of Acts. And by the way, when you are writing literature, openings motivate readers to keep going and keep reading, but endings are what you leave them with that you hope they will remember. And so how does Luke end his history of that first generation of the church? Uh, He's talking about the Apostle Paul here again, and he says this, he says, He stayed two full years in his own rented corners. So when you were in prison in Rome under house arrest, you actually had to rent an apartment to be, like, in prison. So that's an interesting thing. So he was in rented quarters, and he was welcoming all who came to him, and and he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. Unhindered by the empire around him, unhindered by the anxiety of being in chains and in prison, unhindered by the fact that he really wanted to see all of the communities that he had planted over the past 20 years, unhindered by the politics that were surrounding him. Can we get an amen? Um, (laughs) Unhindered by the fact that this is the very message that he knew would ultimately lead to his death. He simply wanted to talk about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And so as I've been thinking and praying over the past uh, couple of months, I took a little bit of a mini sabbatical, which was super restful and necessary for me. And the thing that came to my mind is like, what, what do we want to talk about for the next year? And the thing that I was drawn to is the same thing that the Apostle Paul wanted to talk about at the end of his life. I just want to talk with you for the next nine months about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. Is that okay? Can we do that together? Okay, sounds good. Because there's a lot of things that we could talk about. And um, uh, listen, there is so much going on in the world. How many of you are, are realizing that there's a lot happening in the world right now? The empires of the world are really struggling, aren't they? The powers and the, 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 the countries that have ruled and reigned uh, for so long are, are struggling, our, our, our own society included. I don't know if you're feeling any of that, but there's so much struggle for power out there in the world. And what's going to happen is around February or March is that we're going to begin heading, by the way, into another election season. And the toxicity and the grasp for power is just going to increase. And I just thought, man, what would prepare us better than to talk about the kingdom of God, which is where our heart lies, our affiliation lies in the kingdom that God is building through through Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God as king over all creation. And this is the story inside of which we're living. We're living in a different story. 
And the two primary questions that I want to consider over the next nine months or so is what is the kingdom of God and how does it come? What is it and how does it come? And by way of introduction, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a background and context for what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. And this first part is going to feel like a little bit of a history lesson. And I'm sorry if that like bothers you. Some of you are going to geek out a little bit about that. But the reality is, is that we are part of a broader story that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And in order for us to talk about the kingdom of God of the future, we need to think about what has happened in the past that has got us to this point. And I want to do this introduction in three ways, past, present, and future. So first, let's begin with the past. You guys with me? Awesome. So around 1200 BC, there was a group of semi-nomadic tribes living in the hill country of what is now referred to as Palestine, but was then referred to as Canaan. So think about a bunch of tribes just sort of living in the hills. And it's not really historically possible to trace exactly where these tribes came from, but eventually the culture and the songs and the poetry and the stories and the legends of these tribes begin to kind of coalesce together and they begin to share a particular narrative. Um, uh, and they formed something of like a federation of tribes. And the thing that held them together was a shared narrative about which of the gods that everybody worshipped was the most supreme. Their story and their identity began to merge and eventually they came to know that the god that they had been following had a name and his name was Yahweh. That's the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. And if you read the scriptures, you'll come across this name. It's one of the names of God, but God had many names um, in the story. And they began to tell a unified story about their identity and about who they were as they came together as 12 tribes. And they began to, to talk about their identity around particular people, people like Abraham and Joseph and Moses, how many of you have heard these names before, right? These are the, the people that became, for them, part of their narrative and their story. And they were real people in history, but they became more than that. They became a symbolic kind of representation of who they were as a people. And listen, guys, we have these people in our own narrative. Um, I mean, you could, like, think of lots of people who are both historical figures, but they also mean something kind of representational. So, like, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, or because of the popularity of a Broadway show, we might even throw in the name Alexander Hamilton. Like, we have historic figures that were in real life and lived real lives, but they also stand symbolically for us. And we would be remiss if we also didn't include people like Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass, people who were real historic figures that also stand as representations of who we are as a people and part of our story and our journey. Does this make sense? That's what began to happen for them around people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. They began to have a shared narrative. And Abraham and his family were the first of that group of people that began to hear from God. God began to speak specifically to Abraham. And the promise, the promise, you got to remember this word promise. The promise that this God made to Abraham is that his descendants would outnumber the stars. 
and that through his descendants, all of creation would become blessed. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, I am the God that created the world. I want to partner with you, Abraham, and with your wife, Sarah, who can't have any children, but I'm going to make a promise to you that you guys are going to have a phenomenal family, and through this family, I'm going to bless the entire world. This is the story that these tribes begin to center their lives around. And the defining event that sort of galvanized these tribes together as a people, that brought them together, is when they found themselves living as slaves in Egypt. This is what we read about in the book of Exodus, for those of you that are, that are scripture readers. In the midst of this, God brought forth a leader named Moses, who led them out of the captivity of Egypt. And for a whole generation of people, Moses spoke for God to the people. And they just followed Moses, or at least they tried to. Um, and what, what happened is that God gave Moses particular laws to give to the people. And he said that, that, that we're going to build a relationship based upon promise. And so he made these promises to the people. And he said to them, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to tell you how to do that by giving you some instruction about how to follow me and, and how to organize yourself around worshiping me. So God speaks through Moses to the people, and he says this, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore you will obey my voice and keep my promise. And you shall be my own possession among all of the people, for all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, which means that you'll serve as intermediaries for the world. And you will be set apart among all of the people of the world who are in relationship to their creator. You're going to help bring all of creation in relationship to me. And so these tribes, they were brought together from all of this different region. And they, they came under the name of Israel because they were descendants of Abraham's grandson named Jacob, who God later named Israel. Now listen, scholars are not exactly sure what the name of Israel means, but most of them will agree that, uh, and I want you to bookmark this in your mind because the name of Israel is really important. Most scholars will agree that the name means something particular, and it means this, to rule, to contend, and to prevail over. Some, some version of that, to rule, to contend, and to prevail over. And we're going to come back to this. So Moses has these tribes. He leads them out of slavery. He's trying to follow the God Yahweh into this land that they had promised. And Moses leads them kind of up to the border of the land. But it's actually his successor, Joshua, who leads them into the land. And they take possession of this promised land that God had promised them as a people. Guys, this is a story. If, if you're someone that's been reading the scripture, you know that I'm basically trying to sum up the entire uh, Old Testament here for you. <laughs> but it's really important when we talk about the kingdom of God that we understand where that language comes from. And we're going to say more about this in the months to come. But the way that this story is told is that God basically uh, is working through people. And what begins to happen is they begin to take this land for themselves. Uh, they effectively recognized that they had kind of built a bit of an empire. 
as they multiplied, as they had babies, their people began to grow, and they began to realize as they looked around that every other kind of empire around them had a king. And they begin to ask the question, why don't we have a king? And they begin to ask their God, Yahweh, would you please give us a king? And God's response is, is always basically like, I'm your king. I'm supposed to be your king. And they're like, yeah, but we like want a real king. <laughs> could, you, could you give us like a real person that would be king? And the way that the story unfolds is that God kind of finally relents and he says, fine, if this is what you need in order to be okay, I will give you a king. And um, uh, theologian Robert Jensen describes this, this new moment where God kind of relents uh, and, he, and he gives Israel, his people, a king. He says that the king is to be a living and responsible incarnation of God's presence among his people. So God says, if you need a king, I will give you one, but the role of the king is going to be to represent me to you. Does that make sense? That's the role of the king. And so when God begins to work through people and he begins to try to filter out who is going to be the king, the job lands to an unlikely candidate, this shepherd boy named David. How many of you have heard of David in the scriptures? If you haven't, that's okay. And David apparently had a heart that was after God's own heart. He has a heart of worshiping God, and he loves God, and so God extends his promise to David, and he says, through your line of family is going to come all of the kings, and one day on this throne will sit a king that will reign forever. This is the promise that God made. You guys with me? Okay. History lesson is almost over here. So here's what happened, is that along the way, all of these kings began to sort of turn away from the heart of God. They began to uh, basically not fulfill what they were supposed to do. They stopped representing God's presence in the world. They worshipped other gods. Their hearts were drawn to conquest and war and money and sex and power, which in the ancient world were said to be governed by other gods. So they began to worship other gods alongside trying to worship the one God, Yahweh. And so the whole concept of kings became corrupt. How many of you know that um, power kind of tends to corrupt people? Okay. So that's exactly what happened. There's nothing new under the sun, by the way. So this line of kings, they, 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 they began to stop caring about the poor, and they stopped caring about the orphans, and they stopped caring about the widows and the immigrants. And these kings forgot that the most basic thing was that they were meant to represent God on earth and to rule and to govern that, and, and to put justice at the center. So they began to turn away from justice and not care about how people were doing. And so then we read in the prophets, people like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Amos, they begin to warn the kings. They begin to say, listen, if you don't take up your role as the presence of God in the world, um, things are going to go south pretty quickly. And they began to warn the kings, and they began to say that this will be the downfall if you don't start acting with justice in the way that God has commanded you to do so. 
And sure enough, the day that the prophets warned about came and the neighboring empire from the north came down and took over Jerusalem and pushed most of the people living out into exile. But there were a few people that remained in the city of Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah shares a poem about what happened in this moment. The people are confused, the city is destroyed, but then off in the distance, somebody spots a runner, and the runner is coming towards the city, and the runner, as he's approaching the city, is announcing, good news, good news. This is how they carried news, by the way, back in the day, is people just ran from city to city, shouting, like, what the news was. And so there's this guy coming into a destroyed city, shouting, Good news. Good news. And the basic summary of the message is that, is, is, this is what he says. Uh, it says that even in the midst of destruction, this bearer of good news says to the people, even though your kings have failed and though everything is destroyed, there's been a global pandemic and You've lost your job, and inflation is out of control, and the stock market is plunging, and your marriage is really hard. Your God, Yahweh, is still on the throne. That's the message that he carried. Your God is still the king, and he will fulfill all of the promises that he made to you. That's what the runner says coming into a destroyed city. This is the message of the kingdom of God in our distant past, friends. And it says in our distant past, because one of the most important things for us to remember in this moment is that our faith in following in the way of Jesus is not something that exists outside of history. God is unfolding the promises, and he's pouring his own life of love and blessing into the world through people, through humans through humans that are having a hard time, just like you and I. The way that God's kingdom comes into the world is through the humans. So if you're someone that reads the scripture, again, you're going to recognize that I've just summed up for you the, almost the entire Old Testament story. We skipped over all of creation, but that's fine. We can fill in the, <laughs> the gaps later. Um, and uh, the reason it's important, important for us to dig a little into that is because when we talk about the kingdom of God these days in the present, when people use that language, sometimes people, they, they, they use it very differently than the way that, that we're going to use, use it and the way that we're going to talk about it. The way that we're going to talk about it is rooted in the scriptural narrative. That the promise that God made to those hill country tribes and his concrete actions in the world of delivering his people from slavery and bringing them together as a people and eventually commissioning for a king for them. This is the story that we're sort of picking up with. And we're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be a part of that story, which brings us to the future. And you're thinking, wait, you skipped the present. I know we're going to get there. I want to talk with you for a second about the future. So a promise always has the future in mind. Think, think with me for a second. Can you possibly make a promise without referring to the future? It's impossible, isn't it? Because baked into the concept of a promise is something of the future that will come to pass. 
So every promise you've ever made is about the future because embedded into the idea of a promise is something about the future. And one of the things that the scripture revealed to us is what it looks like to live between the promise that was made in the past and the fulfillment of that promise in the future. That's the story of the past, and there's a promise to be fulfilled in the future. And it's why words like faith and hope and perseverance become pivotal in, in the middle of the story, because those words, too, have built something about the future into them, right? How many of you have ever hoped for something about the past? It's impossible. Hope is only understood as it thinks about the future. The same is true of faith. You're having faith that something will happen. So Isaiah, again, the prophet, he uses a mental picture to help those ancient people try to grasp onto the promises that God is speaking. And this is what he says. He's kind of using a metaphor, and he says this. He says, even as the rain and the snow come down from the sky, they don't return to the sky without first watering the soil and sprouting seeds that one day we will be able to harvest. He says, in the same way that the rain and the snow produce growth in crops, this is how the promise of God works. It's impossible for the promise of God to go forth and have zero return. Promises require fulfillment when they're made from God's mouth. He says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all of the trees of the field will, will clap their hands. What the prophet Isaiah is asking the people to think about is to think about the promise of the future. And he's saying that God's promise will be fulfilled. What would it look like if the promises really came true? So I want you to close your eyes just for a moment, if you feel comfortable. Because this is what the psalmist says. I want you to imagine the entire world covered in water. The only thing that exists is water. The psalmist says that the glory of God will one day cover the entire world as water covers the sea. The prophet Ezekiel describes the glory of God of the future, which has once been housed in a temple with only a few people having access to the presence and the glory of God. He describes it as the glory and the presence of God spilling out of the temple. Like a small stream running down the steps and flowing into the dry land. And slowly this little stream gets bigger and wider and deeper until eventually fruit trees line the edge of the river of the glory of God. And the fruit of these trees heal every wound of all of the people of the earth. The book of Revelation, John uses symbols and metaphors to describe all of creation being restored and new creation bursting forth. In his first letter of the church of Corinth, the Apostle Paul describes the outcome of the coming of the kingdom of God really simply. He says that the reason that all things are coming under the kingdom of God, the reason that God is contending for all of creation 
is so that God's presence may fill everything and that God may be all in all. The presence of God completely covering your life, the life of your family, Sullivan Avenue, Franklinton, the city of Columbus, the entire globe, the presence of God filling all in all, every single human being. And in his letter to the church at Philippi, he describes a scene where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the one true king, which is the glory of God the Father. Friends, the future is bright. You can open up your eyes. The future is bright. We are a people who live by hope in the promise for something to come about in the future. And everything that I just said can basically be summed up like this. So if you had to check out for a moment there, that's totally fine. Let me sum it up for you. God is the king. The kingdom is coming and everyone is invited. God is the king. The kingdom is coming and everyone is invited. Everyone's invited. And so we have the past rooted in promise and the future fulfillment of that promise. But what about right now? What about the present? So the present is this in-between time where the promise is made and the promise is not yet quite fulfilled. How many of you know this already? And this is where we live, by the way. We live in the present, if you haven't recognized that. We don't live in the past, and we don't live in the future. We live right now. This is why if that we live in the story of the Scriptures, what it feels like to live our lives is to live our lives in a period of waiting. You guys know that feeling in the middle of the pandemic? Like in the middle of it. I don't know where we are right now <laughs> in the pandemic, but in the middle of it, do you guys remember that feeling of like, when is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to end? And there was like this anticipation of like, okay, everybody kept saying, okay, well, you know, the curve is going to flatten or, um, you know, pandemics always die off around two years. And you had this sense of hope. It was like, if we could just get to the other side of this. And there's a tension when you're living in the middle of what you want to be true and what is reality. So here's the thing. We're not waiting for the promise to begin to be fulfilled. We're waiting for the promise to finish being fulfilled. The promise has begun to become fulfilled. This is why when Jesus first begins his ministry, the good news writer Matthew, standing in that tradition of the runner, running from city to city, you guys know gospel means good news. So the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are sort of in that tradition of the runner, announcing good news. We have something to proclaim. The, the, the writer Matthew, standing in that tradition of the runner, running from city to city, says that the way that Jesus begins his preaching is with the proclamation. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's beginning. 
It's coming. It's right now. It's within you. It's among you. It's around you. This is the message of Jesus. He's saying the promise is becoming real. It's beginning to be fulfilled. The thing that distinguishes the past from the present is that the past is when the promise is made and then there is waiting. And the present is when the promise that was made begins to be fulfilled and the future is when it comes to completion. And we are in the middle. All of the gospel writers declare in some form or another that the only way of making sense of the things that Jesus was talking about is the promise that God would establish a kingdom with his incarnate representation as the one who would sit on the throne, this promise is beginning to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Guys, this is not something that happens randomly. God steps into history to be the person to fulfill the promise that he made to those initial people. That's why we can count on the promise becoming real into the future and everything that jesus does is a declaration of the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of the coming kingdom of god but listen friends and this is where we're going to head most of the, this next year the way that the kingdom of god comes is really different than the way that the kingdoms of the world are built if you look out, if you, does anybody read the news by chance? Anybody? Okay. Do you see the way that kingdoms are trying to be built right now? I mean, everywhere you look, somebody's trying to build a kingdom. That's what war is about. That's what money is about. That's what power is about, is everybody is trying to build the kingdom of their thing. And the kingdom of God gets built entirely different. The good news that Jesus proclaims is for the poor and the oppressed. It's for the orphan and the widow that those kings of past had forgotten about. It's for the immigrant and the stranger and the addict and the single mom and the dad earning six-figure income and a soul-crushing job. The kingdom of God is for everyone. The invitation is extended to everyone to come and to serve a king whose crown is made of thorns and whose throne is a cross and who looks and loves like a father. That's the invitation that Jesus extends. And you and I are in the middle. How many of you feel like you're in the middle right now? Some tension in your life. There's things you wish were true that are not yet true. What it means to follow Jesus is to live according to the promise that one day in your life, the presence of God will extend in a greater degree. Does that make sense? And as we head into worship, I, I want to close by returning to the name that God gave his people, which, by the way, we've been adopted into. The name of Israel. You might remember that I asked you to bookmark that in your mind. He gave his people a name that means to rule and to contend and to prevail. Because from the very beginning, God has always invited you and I to be co-rulers with him. We're actually going to 
co-rule all of creation with God. That's where this is heading. And this picture of you and I co-ruling with God is over all of creation, ruling in the humble way of Jesus. This is our future destination. But I suspect that most of us feel like we can identify most with the word contending. We're contending for it. We're trying to fight to believe that this is actually true of our lives, that Jesus is trustworthy. Like, it's a real struggle to live in the present, isn't it? To live in the, the reality of the fact that the promise has not yet been fulfilled. We have loved ones that we lose. We experience rejection. Sometimes it feels like we don't have what we need. We have trauma and wounds and all of the ways that we're trying to cope with the world. But the good news is that in the present, God has put a deposit of his future fulfillment into our lives, which is his presence through the Holy Spirit. That's the deposit of the future. Does that make sense? So the reason that we worship, the reason that we gather as a community is that when we do that, the presence of God reminds us of the deposit of the of the promise of the future. And so as we come into our time of worship, which I'll invite the worship folks to come on up, as we head into worship, this is the um, the thing I'd love for you to consider and think through. If you're feeling like you're contending right now with something that's happening in the presence, I want you to invite the presence of God to, to just come and rest on your body. Ask God for an, uh, an experience of the down payment of what the future is going to be. So when we, when we ask God to fill us up, that's what we're asking for, for him to pour out his love to remind us of the promise. The reason that we worship is because in worship, we get to reach forward to the future and we get to pull it into the present. Does that make sense? We reach forward into the future and we pull it into the present, and we say, God, I want it now. I want something now. And so then we cry out to God and worship, and so I want to invite you to stand. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We pray, God, that you would seal the story of your scriptures into our hearts. God, as we worship, would you soften us to your presence, God? Will you fill us up uh, we ask that you would actually uh, do something really particular, Lord, in this first gathering in this space. God, would you pour out your presence here? Lord, let it be a baptism of this new season in this place. I invite you to worship, friends.